Okay, we're going to read from Romans chapter 2, the entire chapter. Okay. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning, condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are introduced by the law, sorry, because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide by the, that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teaches others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who bring about the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you 
who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Amen. Our gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that by your spirit that you would be enlightening the darkness of our minds and our hearts to help us to come to stand more clearly who we are in your sight and uh, what the Saviour has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I think that's what most people in Australia really still believe. It's a bit tricky to uh, understand, to know what how Aussies are thinking these days about God, about themselves and about the afterlife because of the shifting sands of um, our society and our culture. But the, what I call the folk religion of Australia does run pretty deep. And so I think that's still what people are believing. You know how it goes, don't you? You've probably heard it or you've picked it up. Uh, the person who says, well, I know that I'm not perfect. Um, but I am a good person. Um, I work hard, I love my family, I do my best. I think I'll be good enough for God. I hope I will be. Some, of course, would say, yeah, definitely will be. Um, and it's sad when we hear this because we know that usually it's, it's got to do with ign- complete ignorance of God's word and the gospel just hasn't been taught Uh, clearly enough in our churches and in our community and so on. But in some people it also reflects a a degree of pride. Uh, And of course the reason that we can think of ourselves as being uh, good enough for God is because of who we compare ourselves to, isn't it? It's because we compare ourselves to other people and... uh, we can easily find someone who we can consider ourselves to be better than. Uh, it's a bit like the people um, described in Romans 1, which we looked at last week. Uh, the, uh, when Paul explained uh, or Paul talked about uh, the state of humanity, the state of the human heart, uh, where he speaks about the sexually immoral, um, evil, greedy, deceivers, um, those who are arrogant and boastful, murderers and ruthless people, and we say, well, I'm not like that. And if anyone should have trouble getting a ticket into heaven, it should be those people, not me. I'm okay with God. I'm good enough for God. Now, if you open up your Bibles at Romans 2, We might be able to imagine someone in Rome, perhaps, who's been reading through Romans 1 and as they've thought about what Paul is saying in Romans 1, they're kind of thinking the same thing. They're thinking, Paul, I absolutely agree with you. 
all of those people who you describe in chapter 1, all of those murderers and arrogant, boastful and ruthless and immoral and sexually impure people, they all deserve God's judgment and I'm so glad that I'm not like them, that I'm okay with God. You can imagine that hypothetical person reading Paul's letter. In fact, what Paul does is that he... He takes that hypothetical person and he actually writes the person into his letter and has a, a dialogue, uh, if you like, with such a person. Now, any HSC students here today? Uh, you guys should be able to tell me that when uh, someone does that as a sort of a literary kind of tool, what, what's it called? I think it's called diatribe. You can correct me on that if, if you want later on. But uh, you don't know, you've got no idea. You're studying three-unit English, advanced English, oh, I'm getting myself into trouble here, I think. But anyway, so I understand what a, a diatribe is. It's when the, uh, the readers get to kind of eavesdrop uh, into a made-up conversation with a, a made-up character. It's a way of communicating the idea. And that's what Paul does here in chapter 2 in some versions uh, he says, uh, you therefore, O man. He's talking specifically to an individual, not an ind particular person in the Roman church, but this hypothetical person who he dialogues or he diatribes with. And so what, what could we surmise about this person? Well, uh, most likely Paul has in mind a Jew. And that being the case, as well as being uh, an upright, moral Citizen, he's also religious. But he might not be quite as upright as he thinks he is. Let's have a look at some of these verses. Um, pick it up at verses 1, read through the verse 1 to 3, where he says, You therefore, O man, in some versions, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth so when you a mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things do you think you will escape God's judgment wow what's Paul inferring here seems to be saying that this person who's a bit of a critic of others, is actually doing the same thing themselves. And so in our culture, we'd say that that person is called a hypocrite, wouldn't we? You know the old saying, that whenever you point the finger at someone else, you've got three pointing back at yourself. It's the nature of being a hypocrite. Now, some people's sin is just blatantly obvious, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's, it's just out there. It's, it's all laid out. You can see a person's character and the way that they're living their life and how they mistreat other people and it's just, you know, it's out there. It's not hard to spot. But the problem is that this religious moralist, he's comparing himself to that kind of person. And in doing so, he's comparing himself to the wrong person he might actually get a bit of, bit of a different result uh, if he compared himself to God. If he did, he might discover that compared to God's truth, 
that he actually is doing the same things in different ways, perhaps more subtly, more so, in a more sophisticated manner, or maybe in his heart more so than in his actual actions. But he's actually suffering from the same problem of the heart. It's, not just, it's just not quite so obvious as it is with some. So then Paul asks this man if he's actually been treating God's kindness with contempt. Now let's sort of explore that for a moment because, you see, out of all of the peoples of the world, the, the Jews had the, had the great privilege of being God's chosen people, to be God's special people. Now I want you to imagine what that would be like. I mean, we Aussies, we think that we're pretty special, don't we? And uh, we, the United Nations consistently, Human Development Index has rated Australia as the second best country in the world to live in. And um, our, um, our founding fathers at Federation, they set the goal for Australia to be the best country in the world to live in. They actually did set that goal. And we've, we're kind of almost there, aren't we? If only we could do something about Norway. Knock them off their pedestal. <laughs> no, someone should, someone who's, who's making those evaluations should take into consideration coldness and climate as uh, factors that are worthy of consideration. But, you know, it's, it's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, we, we're living the dream. Well, imagine if the God of the universe, the one who had created all things, the one who is over and above, who is from eternity to eternity. Imagine if he had chosen your nation to be his special people, over and above everybody else in the whole world. I mean, it'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? How good would that be? And how tempting as well. How tempting to misunderstand that and to actually use it as a reason to look down your nose at the Gentiles, at those who are not part of God's people. And how tempting would it be to become complacent, to take that relationship for granted and to take the view, well, if that's the case, then it doesn't actually matter too much how I live because I'm immune from prosecution. God's got my back. As God's people, we've got the land. As God's people, we've got the law. As God's people, we've got the temple. As God's people, we've got the priests. As God's people, we've got all of the promises of God. And so I'm okay with God. I'm all right with him. Now, what is the mistake that this person has made? Well, in verse 4, <clears throat> in verse four he has failed to realise that God's Kindness should lead not to pride and contempt, but rather to repentance. And there's nothing new in this. It's always been the case. He should always have known this to be true. It's perfectly clear in the Old Testament. Have a look at verse 5. In verse 5, which reads, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're actually storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That is, there is a day of accounting. 
There is a day when God will judge. It'll be God judge, doing the judging and it'll be God doing the judging by not man's standard, by God's standard. Now, what is that going to look like? Verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he's done. <clears throat> to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew. So there is a privileged position for the Jew, but with privilege comes responsibility and accountability. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the, the Gentile, because guess what? God does not show favouritism. Now, what is Paul saying here? Uh, is Paul saying that there are people who will receive eternal life because of how good they are? I mean, when you look at verse 7, that kind of seems to imply that, doesn't it? That it, those who, by persistence in doing good, will receive eternal life. But if that were the case, wouldn't that actually contradict the gospel? And wouldn't that contradict Paul's whole argument that he's making in the book of Romans? I mean, take a peek, let's take a peek at next week's passage just for a moment. Go over to chapter 3, verse 9. Um, where this is, Paul sums up what he's been on about and he says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge. So this is his case that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, how many people are there who are righteous? There is none. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's actually no one who seeks God because all have turned away. Now, um, if we're Christians, we know where Paul is heading in all of this, don't we? <laughs> um, this is going to take us right to the very heart of the gospel where any person who accepts the truth about Jesus and lives in repentance will be saved. But that's kind of jumping ahead. More of that next week. Here in verses 6 through to 11, Paul is not teaching that anyone, if someone can be, get eternal life because of being good, on, by virtue of being good. What he's simply saying here is that which has been clear in the Old Testament... And that is that God does reward good and he punishes evil. The passages that uh, I've printed for you on your sheets there were the, given you the references for in Job 34 and Psalm 62, Proverbs 24 and so on, where it says that um, uh, God uh, punishes the evil, he rewards those who are good. But set in the context of Israel's pre-existing relationship with God, what this is saying is that simply being Jewish is not enough. Here's the news flash. Obeying God's truth, actually doing good in response to what God has done for you, is not an optional extra. Uh, that's always been the case. 
Now, of course, it's the same for us. Um, going to church every Sunday, I recommend doing that, by the way. It's good to be in church every Sunday. But in itself, that doesn't make anybody right with God. Uh, nor does being born into a Christian family. It's great to be born into a Christian family, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, or having a grandfather who was a minister. I've heard that one before. I'm a Christian. My grandfather, he was... Or don't Presbyterian minister, moderator, or being baptised. I mean, these things may mean that we have had access to God's truth as part of God's community of people, the church. But on the day of judgment, the only thing that matters is, did you trust in Jesus? And in gratitude and repentance, live for him. That's what matters. That's the sense in which God rewards those who do good. It's those who are living that life of repentance because of what God has already done for them. Now, the way I understand Romans 1 and 2 is that I like to think about it in terms of Paul. Uh, Paul is applying a can of paint stripper to humanity. Um, in chapter 1, he has stripped away our idolatry. He's talked about the God who is the creator of the universe and everything that God has done, and yet we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and idols and filled our lives up with other stuff. He's exposed that in order to expose our sin. And here in chapter 2, he strips away our moral and our religious pride so that the universal reality of our brokenness is exposed no matter who we are or who we think we are. We're all sinners. And guess what? On the day of judgment, in verse 11... God doesn't play favourites. You can't turn up to God and say, hey God, but I was a Jew. <laughs> or God, I was a Presbyterian. Or God, I... did you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you lived a life of repentant goodness because of him? There's no favourites. Verse 12. <clears throat> For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the just requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. You see, how many Jews do you think obeyed the law perfectly? We do know the, the exact number, by the way. Um, anyone who has, has a guess? How many Jews? Lachlan? Uh, no, you're wrong. Uh, Tim? One. Correct. Thank you. Uh, but, Lachlan, I'm going to give you a consolation prize because if you take Jesus out of the picture, 
It's none. Correct. Yeah. It's not an unfair advantage. There's nothing unfair about it. He was obedient. Obedient. See, there is no, uh, no Jew who has perfectly obeyed God's law. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul says that no one is declared righteous by observing uh, the law because what the law does is this. It actually provides us with the proper basis of comparison. I mean, if we're comparing ourselves to the character of other people, we can look pretty good, depending on who you're sitting next to. But the law enables us to compare ourselves to the character of God. And when we do so, our sinfulness is exposed. That's for the Jews. What about for the Gentiles? I mean, they didn't have the law. Just Let's go back to what I was just reading a moment or two ago, because I read it when I shouldn't have been reading it. I want you to focus on verse 14. Paul says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, who are, who are these Gentiles? And what does it mean to have the requirements of the law written on their hearts? Uh, look, the scholars debate about this one, actually. And one view is that Paul is referring here to Gentiles who've become Christians. Um, unless you're Jewish, uh, and if you're a Christian, then people like us. Uh, people who, by God's Spirit, now uh, have the law written on their hearts, as per the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. And uh, therefore, in gratitude for the gospel, live obediently. And so the view is that that's the kind of Gentiles, Christian Gentiles, that Paul has in mind. And, and that, of course, is absolutely true. Um, that's what the gospel does for Gentiles. Uh, however, there is another view, and I, I lean towards this view myself, and that is that I take it that Paul here is referring to non-Christian Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles whose, whose morality, whose personal mor morality, overlaps with God's morality. Uh, you see, unlike the, uh, the Jews, uh, the Gentiles were not given God's law, but by nature, they do know certain things to be right and certain things to be wrong. I mean, that matches our experience, doesn't it? Of course it does, obviously. Uh, you don't need to be a Christian to know that the behaviour that's described in chapter 1 is at the very best unhelpful for society and, in fact, is wrong. Um, God has given... All people a degree of common sense so that we can know what is good for our lives and for our society, uh, as faulty as that common sense is. Uh, he's given us the ability to know that murder and lying and stealing, uh, that these things are not good. Uh, society doesn't tend to work very well when they're accepted. And God has not entirely given us over to the uh, 
full expression of our sinfulness. Uh, if he did, can you imagine what life in this world would be like? Um, the word hell comes to mind. Uh, it would be unbearable. God in his mercy hasn't given us fully over. And so obviously there are many, many, many non-Christians who are very, very good people. But the question is, are they good enough for God? And the answer is no. A couple of thoughts here. First of all, because their morality does not actually flow from a love of God. It just happens to coincide with what God wants. But essentially, they're still saying, this is how I want to live my life. And anything that doesn't flow from faith is sin. But more than that, the good non-Christian doesn't even live up to his or her own standard. For in the passage there, uh, in verse 15, what do their consciences and their thoughts do? What are the two things that they do? First of all, accusing, and second, secondly, defending. Their consciences, working through their thoughts, both accuse them and, in the context of judgment, defend them. That is, they know when they do wrong and they try to justify their wrongdoing. Uh, when I was a non-Christian, I used to lie. I thought that lying was wrong, but I did it anyway. And when um, I told people that I'd lied, uh, they would say, well, that's okay. Everyone else is doing it. And so I would feel um, justified that it was okay. I lied to the police once like that when I'd actually done something wrong and they had me down at the police station and I signed a false statement. How about that, eh? I'll tell you the story later on. <laughs> but you see, this is what, how people think. They say, they say, I know it's wrong to cheat on my tax, so that's their consciences accusing them, but hey... I'm not going to get caught <laughs> and everyone else is doing it and that's their consciences defending them. Um, Self-righteousness. And that's why in chapter 3 verse 9 Paul says that the, the charge that he's been making uh, in Romans thus far uh, to the point of chapter 3 verse 9 the charge he's been making is that both Jews and Gentiles, no matter what revelation of God and of right and wrong that they have received, they are both under sin. It doesn't matter who we are. We are all helplessly exposed. We all need a saviour. Some of the most difficult non-Christians to reach with the gospel are actually middle-class regular churchgoers. Does that surprise you? Well, it shouldn't because there's this propensity for people to, uh, for good moral people to trust in their own morality and, 
and also to trust in their religious observances to be able to in their own mind say well I'm good enough for God and so before Paul gets to Jesus he basically wants to napalm this whole idea it's a scorched earth policy he wants to completely eradicate this kind of thinking and he therefore has to focus on the Jewish person because of the things which the Jews were trusting in. What were the main things they trusted in? Well, first of all, they trusted in the law. Now, in the ancient world, there was nothing quite like the law of Moses, the law that God had given through Moses. Uh, in terms of its um, morality, its justice, its compassion... Uh, it was extraordinary. It was head and shoulders above anything else in the ancient world. And you know why? Well, because it reflected the very character of the God who made the world. That's why. By having the law, Israel was in a position, uh, and we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, by the way, but Israel was in a position to... Uh, to a in obeying that law to display the character and the glory of God to the nations around so that the other nations would see this light coming from Israel and say well I want some of that that they would actually come to know God through the witness the godly witness and the testimony of Israel as they obeyed the perfect law of God but what happened instead Verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, which is absolutely true, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. Well, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Matthew chapter 5, any man who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, and here he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, written 800 years earlier, when Israel was so um, ungodly that God had expelled them into exile in Babylon, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a scathing indictment. I mean, what sort of a witness were they to the Gentiles? They were a terrible witness. And not just in 800 years earlier, at the time of the Babylonian exile, where Isaiah, in the context that Isaiah wrote, but in the first century, when Paul is writing to these Christians in Rome it's interesting that he says and I don't know if you pick this up or not he said you who abhor idols do you rob temples 
And you scratch your head and you think, what? what's that about? <laughs> what does he mean by that? Well, there's a good chance that the Jews living in Rome ex- understood exactly uh, what Paul meant by that. Because about 40 years earlier, Emperor Tiberius had expelled every Jew from the city of Rome, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, didn't want them there because they're actually bad citizens. Now, why would he have done that? Well, there was a group of Jews uh, led by a, a rabbi who had persuaded a uh, wealthy Roman woman to convert from idolatry. I mean, idols are bad, idolatry is bad, and Rome was full of idolatry. They persuaded this woman to convert from idolatry to Judaism. Then they persuaded her to go and donate a massive amount of money to the temple in Jerusalem, which they then embezzled and spent on themselves. Suddenly what Paul says here, you know, has got some flesh on the bones, doesn't it? Makes sense. How about this? A light to the Gentiles, you preach against idolatry, but that's what you actually do. You rob temples. So, bottom line here is Paul is saying, don't trust in your obedience to the law because guess what? You don't have a leg to stand on. Secondly, in verses 25 to 29, they also tended to trust in circumcision. Now, imagine someone thinking that they were somehow good enough for God because they had undergone a religious surgical procedure. Imagine that. I mean, we'd never think anything like that, would we? Yeah? Imagine someone thinking that they were right with God because a minister had splashed water on them or dunked them them under a pool. I mean, if it was as easy as that, we'd be out in the streets with hoses, wouldn't we? If that's what it means to be a Christian, that's how a person becomes a Christian. Verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men but from God. Do you know what the word Jew means? Well, you know, directly it comes from the tribe of Judah because after the exiles to Assyria and so on, that uh, was basically the tribe of Judah that was left. But uh, Judah himself, his name means praise. The word Jew means praise. Who then is the person who receives praise from God? Who is the true Jew? It's not the person who trusts in their religious credentials or their broken morality... It's the person with the broken heart. Convicted of their idolatry, stripped of all pride, 
they are ready to hear about the Saviour and his death for them. My friend Ian um, was a very good man and he uh, was a religious man as well. He was so good and so religious that guess what? As a man in his early 20s, he sung in the church choir. Um, how's that for credentials, eh? And he uh, was a part of my young adults Bible study group. Every week we'd meet together and study God's word. I really thought that Ian was a Christian. I had no doubts that he was a Christian until the day he knocked on my door, sat down with me and he confessed that it was all a facade, that he'd been trusting in his own goodness, his own church going, but he knew that that was hopeless. I remember that day because barely holding back the tears, he told me that it was now time for him to come clean with God and to trust in the Saviour. What about you? Where's your trust? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you sing the words of the hymn we sometimes sing, Rock of Ages? Can you sing, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and most merciful Heavenly Father, we confess to you our own self-righteousness. We confess to you that we have uh, trusted in ourselves, in our own goodness, in our own connections with church we've not necessarily always trusted in you as our lord and savior we pray for anyone here lord god who needs to make that change that you by your spirit would grant them your mercy to do so help us lord god uh, strip away cut away all of our pride all of our arrogance and help us to see ourselves as you see us as sinners who've been saved by a mighty and wonderful Saviour. And we ask this in his name. Amen.